I know I say this like every week, but wasn't the band amazing? Let's like clap for them. Like, it's so awesome. Like, I'll remind you, we are still a very new church, and they have such an amazing worship team each week. That's awesome. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I think it's so great. But anyways, welcome to Centerpoint Church. My name is Aaron DeMaster, and I'm the pastor here. Our mission here is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God, whether that means just giving you a place to pop in and hear about God and take off, whether that means helping you start a relationship with Him, or whether that means helping you mature and grow in your relationship with Him. We want to help you take your next step. This week, we're in the last week of our series that we've been calling Grace Bomb. And if you, it's your first time hearing about Grace Bomb, what a grace bomb is, is, is this, is a grace bomb is an intentional act of love motivated by Jesus. It's a surprising gift meant to brighten your neighbor's day. Um, so we as a church, we talked about how Jesus grace bombed us on Easter at the cross, taking on the consequences of our mess ups against God and against others, and then forgiving us so that we can be with God without baggage, without limitations. It's this free, undeserved, unearned gift of grace that's disruptive, it's infiltrating, it kind of makes you do this face, like when it happens to you, like there's something stinky happening, a bomb, and it changes the course of your life when you accept it. And it's something like you have a hard time experiencing and then just sitting in it without doing anything in response to it. Like you feel you, you got to get out. You got to do something about it and not just sit in the Dutch oven of grace, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say in kind of a, an inappropriate way is, is experience a bomb of grace from Jesus. It makes you want to respond, right? It makes you want to respond in a way. And it's this gift that doesn't require anything. But it usually moves you and makes you want to share it with others. So we are, we like to say, grace-built people by Jesus that are set to grace-bomb people. And that's what we've been talking about and doing as a church throughout this whole series. So again, a grace-bomb is something you do. It's a random, infiltrating act of, uh, that people are like, wait, what? Me? Seriously? Why? Wow. Thank you. And then we use these cards that you see in the seat in front of you, these grace bomb cards. And we give these to the people when we do the act because we want to point to the source of the grace bomb, Jesus. As we conclude this series this week, if you're like me, doing grace bombs, it's been honestly kind of a mix of like this amazing mission that's tough, it's challenging, exhilarating, but it's also kind of straight up annoying um, like, if you've been there here for multiple messages, you might be thinking, like, how long can this dude talk about grace? Like, well, first off, for a long time, as it's the core to the gospel. But our series, it's switching, so know that that's coming soon. But you might be like, honestly, I'm so sick of this guy on stage pushing me to do a grace bomb to others. Like, I just want to not feel the pressure to do, to act. I don't want to feel the pressure to act on my relationship with God. If you're feeling that right now or feeling that through the series, I'm right there with you. My wife is actually driving me insane about it lately. Um, she, she's the one that always makes me walk the talk. Uh, the talk that comes on Sunday and actually living it out. Like, you remember, she'd be like, you remember what you said on Sunday? Or didn't you say on Sunday that you're going to start doing that now? Be like, yeah. <laughs> remember on, on Sunday you said you're the clean one? Prove it. Like, like, that, that's the type of stuff that happens. And I'll be like, I do get it, yeah, but I don't want to hear it. 
Well, anyways, the other day, I did a grace bomb uh, to a friend of ours in our neighborhood. I was just getting rid of some of their brush for them. And I sit down after doing it, like, and I'm kind of just like, ah. My wife kind of sneaks around the corner. She's like, so who are you going to grace bomb next? I'm like, come on. Let me just, like, rest in this. Let me just relax. I'm like, what? I'm good. But honestly, the constant prompting and nagging of grace bombing others or doing grace to others is refining us to be and live more and more like Jesus. In Matthew 5.16, it says this. In the same way, and this is towards the middle of the section. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, that's why we do these grace bombs. But one of my biggest struggles with grace bombs, that's an internal struggle, is the part of the verse that says, everyone, everyone. So that everyone can experience it. And I'm kind of like, I don't really want to grace bomb everyone. I find it easy to grace bomb people that are maybe similar to me, who have walked what I'm walking, that I like, uh, that I personally like, or I feel are deserving, but harder to do the opposite. Can you relate to that a bit? Like, it's, for me, I was, I was thinking about it, it's just way easier to connect and show grace and understanding to someone when, when you've been down their particular life stage, right, or personally know their situation or have been there in the past. Personally for me, I, I've analyzed more people than probably most people have. But when you're in a stage, a particular life stage or experience, you tend to care for others more that are in that as well. I've been through kind of like a lot of like normal life changes and stages as a pastor that have allowed me to like connect with people on different levels. Like so before I met my wife, I was a pastor. So I was a single person trying to figure out what it looks like to be a Christian during that time. And that was a unique experience for me. I was a pastor to teens. So I saw and I understand a little bit more about teens than maybe most do. I was a Christian trying to figure out the dating world. Like that's this whole thing. Uh, I was a pastor as a newly married couple, uh, and I'm now a pastor of a non-newly married, uh, as a new married couple, and as a parent. Like, when I was in one of those particular stages, I instantly could relate to them and those people in that stage and felt like, I understand you a bit more. I know what type of ways I can give you grace. I think it's worth sharing some of them, so bear with me on my little tangent here. But, like, for teens, it was understanding that They'll do pretty much anything for video games if they're a dude. Like, and they'll do anything for food and showing up to, like, they want you to show up to their activities or extracurriculars. But then they also want you to give them understanding in their mess-ups and give them a second chance in their times that they mess up and do the wrong thing. Understand that even though as adults we're like, how are you busy? They are stressed. They are busy. To singles, like, it was understanding the loneliness of being single Everyone thinks it must be so nice to have so much freedom or you just get to pick on your own all the time. But honestly, for most, it's lonely. It's lonely. And then if you want to be in a relationship or find someone, understanding how difficult it is to navigate the best approach to dating. To newlyweds, let's be real, it's just easy, right? That's an easy one. Um, Everything's sunshine and roses or rainbows. Just tell them they look cute together. That's all you need to do. But for real, uh, embrace the fact that, like, they're going through tough transitions, right, of sharing duties, roles, money, time. As a married couple, it's understanding that you literally could have been in a fight in your car and then walked into this church building. Uh, That's married life right there. Like, you literally are turning it on for people. Hypothetically, of course. (laughs) 
and now you're totally fine here, you know? Or finally with parents, it's that you literally have a hundred things on your mind, so any break or rest is amazing. And then I'll keep going for one last one. For those people that are past me, from what I hear, I won't pretend I know, but from what I hear, it's understanding the loneliness of an emptier house as an empty nester, of changes to not having as much to do with the kids involving everything you do, and figuring out who you really are as a single person or a couple in your older age. Anyways, when I was in one particular group, I would kind of judge the other before I got to it. Uh, if that makes sense. And, and when something weird would come up, I'd be like, really? Uh, okay. You know, I, that's what I would do. I'd make that face. But when you're in that stage, you understand you're more accepting and you're grace, more grace-filled towards them. So here's a few examples. I had a coworker a while back. Like, he had kids before me. And he would, like, come up to me and he'd be like, dude, I'm so excited about buying a bike carrier. It's going to be so awesome. There's, like, five different ones to choose from. Like, it's going to be amazing to bring our kid in it. And I'm like, cool story, bro. I got like a thousand bikes to choose from, you know, like we're both in the bikes and like, but like now as a parent, I'm like, bike carriers are cool. You know, like I, I like had, I got to show you a picture of it. Like they're like the coolest thing. Like, so here's our, our chariot. It also like can be for skis. Here's like another picture. Uh, yeah. So you can pull it and then like it also is a bike carrier or a jogger. That's me like really fit on the beach. Not really. That's me on a bike. Not really. But like it's this really cool carrier that I really got into and I was like super judgy of before I, I actually had a child. Uh, another one for me was uh, uh, when, before I was married, when I was single and friends and I would be hanging out, we'd be like, it's like Friday at 9 or 10, and we'd be like, let's get the gang back together, you know? Like, let's get everybody here. So we'd call people up, and our married friends would be like, nah, we got a big Saturday plan. We can't. We're like, what? What do you mean, big Saturday? And and then basically they'd explain like this video we're gonna watch here. And when I was in college, this is what I was thinking. Well, um, actually, pretty nice little Saturday. We're uh, we're gonna go to Home Depot. Yeah, buy some wallpaper, maybe get some flooring, stuff like that. Maybe Bed Bath and Beyond. I don't know. I don't know if we'll have enough time. (laughs) (laughs) It's gonna be a big Sunday. I was judgy, but now I love Saturdays like that. A little Menards, a Costco, TJ Maxx, whatever. Now, the reason I tell you all of this, it's not just to share about me. (laughs) It's easy to to grace bomb people and not judge others who are like us and are in our stage of life or live in a particular way. It's easy for us to think of ways to grace bomb them, right? And it's easy to follow through with those grace bombs. But what about others? What about others? I feel Jesus wants us to grace bomb to more than people that we see as like us or who we like. It's one thing to grace bomb people who are like us. But what about the people who we perhaps hold something against for whatever the reason maybe is? For me, I personally can't stand poor service like at a restaurant, like when an employee gives you the stink eye or they avoid you or they aren't positive about their place in employment. They aren't apologetic when things go wrong. I can't stand it. But when this happens, they create this wall, or they create this fence or division between me and enjoying my meal, and honestly, probably never going back to that place. But I realize that's the same with Christians. That's the same with Christians. If we're like crabby, judgmental, not accepting of other people's mistakes, the one who shares the the gossipy prayer requests, or the one who gives the glares or whatever, we make people dissatisfied with their life, and we're turning them off. 
we're turning people away from the real grace of God that he intends for them. We, people who supposedly, if you're a Christian, are disciples trying to reach others, we essentially build a fence, we build a wall, a blockade, a barrier for some people to reach the grace that we're honestly trying to reach. As grace bombers, our goal is to tear down fences, to allow people to experience intentional acts of grace that's rooted by Jesus. Along with some of us here today, we maybe need to tear down our own personal fences that are between us and experiencing the grace that Jesus offers. For you today, as we dive in, uh, you may be in one of two camps. I want to say you maybe are in camp one right now. You might be thinking like, ah, I don't really like church people. It's not my thing. Uh, I don't belong, they're judgmental, they're kind of sexist or racist, or they're not affirming of different things, they, they, they think they have it all figured out. And then you might be thinking, I'm dealing with my own stuff. Like, I, I have this, this baggage between me and God, or this mistake between me and God. I have these feelings of, of difference, of unworthiness, of loneliness, or unlovableness, whatever it is. You have this blockade between you and God. Well, we're going to break that wall today. But if that's not you, you're probably in this other camp. You're in this other camp. You're one who maybe is subtly making a fence without even trying. A fence between others and God. You're the one that probably is unintentionally creating a fence without even trying. Judgmental glances. Feeling you know absolute truth when others uh, don't. Or feeling that you can pass judgment but not anybody else. Feeling entitled. Feeling uh, that you can find the differences in people instead of finding unity. Stressing rules over love. I know I've basically done all of those things. But if that's you, or you don't think that's you, it probably is. So we're going to break that wall down a little bit today too. So as we wrap up this series today, we're going to see how Jesus breaks down fences for us to either experience grace and how we're to break down fences for others to experience grace. We're talking about the outsiders, the people that are hard to show grace. Now my hope is that as you leave here today is you realize Jesus has broken down all fences or barriers to get you to God. If you're, if you're in one camp, that there are some things that you need to remove in your own life to help others experience less barriers. And then we're also going to look to the story that's called the woman at the well. And it's a story in John 4, and it's going to explain a little bit about how we can break down walls. And what, we're going to start it right now. And it, how it starts is there's a Samaritan woman and a literal well, like I said. And it's about this interaction with this woman who is fetching water and she has this encounter with Jesus in the middle of the day while they're both by themselves. While his disciples are out getting lunch. And Jesus, he literally breaks down barrier after barrier after barrier in this story. Without even trying, this woman had barriers. Her barriers were allowing her to not step into faith. So the first barrier that we can see is Jesus has this, this barrier of racism between her and this other woman, or this woman. And it's this fence post that's between him and her. Racism. Now, she's a Samaritan woman. She's a different race than he was, which for a typical Jew at that time, Jesus was a Jew. It, I kind of say this all the time. It was like a packing Packers and a Vikings fan. Like, you just don't get along, right? Like, they're different. But, like, I want to take it even a little bit further. And this gets a little extreme. I want to, it's a bit harsher, but a better way to describe it is, like, whatever political side you land on, it's the extremist on the other side. That's kind of the difference between 
the Jews and the Samaritans. That's kind of how and even how much they disliked each other. So there's this nationality, this race barrier. And then there's other barriers between Jesus and this woman. So there's uh, misunderstanding between him and her. There is sexism between him and her and culturally. There is just kind of a hot mess. She's got her own issues going on right now. And then finally, there's, there's religion. I don't know if this one's going to stay. Uh-oh. It worked in the practice. <laughs> Let's just do it like this, how about... So there's sexism, there's hot mess, there's religion, there's misunderstanding. These were things that were offense between Jesus and this woman. And we see right away in the story, Jesus starts tearing down this fence to get between her and so that there's no, no longer a barrier between them. And we see in the story, we first off see that Jesus sees this woman. He understands that she's a Samaritan, uh, yet he still approaches her. He starts to have this discussion with her, and it's in John 4, 7, 9. He says, give me a drink, he says to her. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. He's going after the fence post. Well, a woman in public, to have a conversation during that time with, with a rabbi, Jesus was a rabbi, that was countercultural. Contemporary rabbis would feel like, that's wasting time. There's no reason for me to talk to that. Yet he's going after that barrier. He wants to take it down. He's asking her for a drink. So Jesus removes the sexism barrier between them. He gets rid of it. Now, I got to pause there and just chuckle a little bit uh, at that whole concept and interaction. Like if simply asking a woman for a drink would mean breaking down a barrier for them, I'd be doing it all the time, right? Like that'd be amazing. Like can I have a drink? That'd be like so easy. But I want to clarify, if you've been coming to Centerpoint for a while, there's a little bit of an inside joke. I made a comment, a sermon a few months back ago, about women not leaving their men thirsty. If you were here, uh, like here's kind of like a little clip of it. Maybe. It's like being thirsty. It's like right? being you, thirsty, right? You, you go to bed thirsty and you're like, I, I want a drink. And if you don't get that drink, you're still thirsty, like the next day. So women, don't leave your men thirsty. And, and talking about marriage and thirst and sex. So if you're interested in that one, you have to check back. That was from a few months ago. It could be super helpful. But anyways, that is not the type of thirst Jesus is asking for or type of drink he's asking for. He's asking for a literal drink. Now, let's continue. He asked for a favor that involves using her vessel or her uh, item to be able to drink. I'm personally, I'm kind of a germaphobe. Like, I'm the type of guy that, like, does, like, weird things in the bathroom. I'm going to show you a little clip of this in a second. I'm the type of guy that, like, won't touch the bottle. I do, like, this weird thing. It's exactly like this clip. Check it out. Actually, I don't, there's germs on the toilet paper. I got to, I'm going to have to ninja warrior this poop. Uh, okay. So thirsty, dude. Could I borrow your water? Dude, thanks so much. Yeah. Who's ready to turn? That's me. That's me doing that. I'm kind of a germaphobe. But culturally, back then, it was normal to share. It was normal to share vessels. 
but not with another race. It was not culturally safe at that time for them to, to think that way. Or again, with someone who, if they were a different race, they were kind of seen as like unclean or someone that they were like, they could maybe catch a spiritual germ or become unclean by drinking out of the same vessel. Can you think of other times like maybe in our world where that's happened and how it should be removed? Well, Jesus removes it by asking this woman for a drink using her vessel. He gets rid of the racism. Now, Jesus keeps going. In the verse, Jesus answers her original question to show her her greatest need and who supplies it. It's in John 4.10. It says this. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it, it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, don't miss the power of this very simple object lesson that Jesus is trying to show at a time where there's no indoor plumbing. Like water, villages needed water to live because it was refreshing in the desert. Now living water, you need it to live and it's refreshing for your soul. We see she has this misunderstanding. She's misunderstanding Jesus' object lesson of saying, I can provide you living water. So the woman said to him in John 4, 11 to 12, it says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jacob is Israel's, like, forefather. He's the guy that's kind of brought, like, God's people to where they're at. He's had 12 tribes. He's just this huge, well-known guy. And the question she's basically asking is, she's saying, are you greater than our top dog? Are you greater than him? You're going to provide something that he can't? And Jesus answers, yes. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this is John 4, 13 to 14, who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal, to eternal life. Jacob Jacob couldn't provide living water. He couldn't provide eternal life. He couldn't provide something for your soul that you're feeling you need inside. It's what he could provide was a lineage, a heritage, a last name. Living water has nothing to do with that. Only Jesus can meet our greatest need. And his gift culminates eternal life. It gets us to eternal life. Jesus is trying to say is, what are you filling your thirst with? What are you filling your thirst for life with? What wells do you go to to get your water that you need for life? The things that quench your thirst. I want you to think for a second personally. How would you answer that question? How would you answer the question of what wells do you go to to get your living water? To get your living water. The problem with going to other wells that maybe come to mind other than Jesus or God in search of life, is they leave you thirsty. Whether that well is success, it's security, it's relationships, it's money, it's life, it's comfort, it's chasing after things, they will leave you thirsty. Living water, or what Jesus says he will provide, heals the soul forever. Let's continue. Although still misunderstandings, we still have a few barriers, she's still misunderstanding, she is intrigued a bit. The woman says to him, she, in John 4, 15, it says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water anymore. 
What happens next seems odd, but her spiritual eyes, they kind of need to be open, right? Like Jesus needs to show that he is God. He is more than meets the eye. Only someone that like is God could tell her this next phrase. So Jesus says to her in John, in John 4, 16 to 18, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband, Jesus said to her. You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now have the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is pointing out, you've done some wrongs. You've done some wrongs, and there's kind of this barrier between us potentially. And you can see this even from the biblical cues of this story. Back then, most women, why would you go get water at the hottest part of the day, right? Like you wouldn't go in the middle of the day. It's hot. She's going in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to bump into anyone else. She doesn't want to bump into anyone else. She is an outcast at that time. People don't associate with her. She doesn't want to feel alone and, like, and feel like that people are just ostracizing her. She is coming at the middle of the day so she doesn't have to deal with it. People have put up fences with her. And I find it remarkable, though, that this noon hour, the middle of the day, happens to be the time Scripture says Jesus was also tired and all his disciples left him to go into town to get lunch. I find it remarkable that Jesus is alone, right? Like, why would you leave Jesus alone? If Jesus is here and you believe in him, you would be there with him all the time. Like, I'm skipping lunch today is what you'd be thinking. Well, that's kind of showing that this was a divine appointment. For Jesus to be at this place at this time to grace bomb this woman, there must have been something orchestrating it. I got to pause there one more time and, and think, have you experienced that? Like you're feeling like that you're maybe in the right place at the right time to maybe, maybe experience an interaction with Jesus uh, that you know you need to experience right now today. That you're, or maybe right now you're thinking, I, I've been in the right place at the right time to grace bomb someone else and I just haven't acted on it. I'm experiencing this. But we can see that Jesus is also in this situation and he starts a conversation with her when others will not. He pulls this fence post and he removes the one that shows that she is misunderstanding. And he's also pulling away the hot messness. He's pulling away the fact that she is a hot mess and that the fact that she has done some wrongs, but he doesn't care. He can still go to her. But our dialogue keeps going from where we left off. Not changing the subject, this woman, she goes after the elephant of the room and the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but, I si but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. She's saying, we disagree about our religions. I'm intrigued, but I'm stuck. Help me, is what she's saying. What's the right place to worship? I, wa I want to know the details. Honestly, this is a church folk problem. Like, we have deeply entrenched convictions about where we should worship or what type of church should it look like or all that. And how it's done and where and what style and what beliefs. But we see Jesus moves past this. Jesus says in, in John 4, 21 to 22, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is saying salvation is, is what the Jews have been talking about this whole time as the creator's specific revelation through the Jews, the, the Old Testament people. That is what has been delivered. They were appointed once to deliver this news. But he's saying, I'm ready to fulfill that. 
I'm going to fulfill that. So Jesus drops this mic drop moment, and he says, the hour in John 4, 23, the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The place of worship for both parties, Jews and non, is now obsolete. There is now a new place of worship. Not the mountain, not the temple, but the heart. It's in your heart where you worship. Religion or denomination differences, they don't matter anymore. To worship in truth, uh, in, in the way and in the life, yielding our hearts to Christ, that is true worship. And he's pointing to. So he removes the, the religion barrier. He removes the fact that all can worship. And as far as we will get today in this passage, we see that she is open and ready to have the last barrier removed, which is her misunderstanding. Her misunderstanding of things. She's, she's still a bit confused of what's going on, why Jesus would interact this way she would. So the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, she says. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus speaks without a metaphor and simply says, I am he. He removes her misunderstanding. Now, she is able to step into faith and find her true life filled by Jesus of water that will never run out. What happens next is she runs to town. She tells the town they come. Many believe in Jesus after Jesus being there for two days. Tons of people become followers of Jesus just through this one interaction that Jesus had with her. So again, as we see these fence posts being removed and pulled, and we think of grace bombing, there are a lot of barriers that tend to get placed between us and God. Barriers that have been broken down by Jesus already, but we've either placed as, for others as Christian people, or ones that we've realized that uh, that we just have put up on our own self, that we haven't torn down between us and Jesus. What are those barriers that you are seeing in your own life? What are the barriers you maybe are creating that others aren't able to come to God through? Maybe for you, it's one of the ones the woman dealt with, which was, which, which was sexism or racism or religion or a hot mess or misunderstanding. Maybe that's one that you're dealing with. Maybe that's the one you're putting up with for people. These just happen to be what that woman experienced in that story. But maybe it's different than what that woman experienced. Maybe for you, it's you have a barrier of doubt. You have a barrier of pride or socioeconomic status or a past history. Honestly, for me, uh, I was thinking about this. Like I, on the other side of this one is past I have on here. And I was thinking about this one. This has been the fence that has been in my life for a long time. Uh, as I started on my growth or journey with God and going even into seminary, I started to think, created, I've made too many mistakes as a Christian. I've made too many mistakes to be a pastor. There's no way that I can like kind of justly say I'm a pastor. Like I've just, I've done some bad stuff. I've partied too hard. I've participated in things that are just ungodly. I've purposely chosen wrong against God even when I know it's wrong. I thought I, I wouldn't be able to speak on things of how to follow God uh, as people would just see me as a hypocrite. And I was wrong. I had a fence post between me. It's actually the opposite is what I've experienced 
My mistakes are what people see me as human, as a normal person. They're what have grown my ministries. They're what people can identify with. And I eventually tore this panel down in my own life. Have you done that for you in the past? Your plank of the past. Maybe it's taking your next step in growth. Maybe it's asking uh, a hard question with a close friend to help you get past something. Maybe it's moving forward and not back. Or maybe it's looking to how God can redeem and use your past for good. But then, my story doesn't end there. It continues. Like, after being a good Christian or a good pastor for a while, I start to look around and see people's presence and I see their past. And I kind of started to pick this back up. And I started to pick another one up too, expectation. And these both started to pop back up into my life in between me and other people. Like I started to think when I saw other Christians, I'd be like, what were you thinking in that moment? Like, are you even a Christian? How could you fall to that? You know better. You're not accepted. And my glances, my thoughts started creating fences that are just wrong. I'm talking to the Christian people right now. Have you done that before? Have you placed fences between you and what you think other people should be doing? Have you been there? Expecting something from someone before you even know their story. Expecting some, or everyone to be at maybe the same stage as you process the things you're going through the way you did. I think we've all built fences, even as Christians. What do you need to do to get rid of those fences? How do you catch yourself from doing it? Do you need to force yourself to have the real conversations with the person? Do you need to have a relationship with them before you judge? Do you need to be open-minded? So this week, as we wrap up Grace Bomb, how can your life be one that both embraces grace, but also gives grace? Honestly, for you, you again are maybe in camp one, where you feel like, the woman in the story, actually. You feel, you identify with her. You need to realize, like, Jesus has removed fences, fence posts for you. You have grace in your hot mess, in your misunderstandings. Even if you think there's whatever it is that's separating you from God, Jesus is removing those. Embrace that. Embrace that Jesus desires for you to be close to him. And that he not only, like, wants to help you get on the right path, but he wants to use your past for a purpose. That woman brought so many to faith because she saw the fence post gone. That could be you. That could be you. If that's you, embrace Jesus today. Embrace Jesus and start sharing what he's done in your own life. Or lastly, maybe you're that other camp. You've realized that we've all contributed to making fences in our friends' lives and others' lives to keep them from getting closer and closer to Jesus' grace. For you, maybe you need to be less judgmental about race or sex or difference someone has. For you, maybe you need to advocate for more love than what you feel is like absolutely right. For you, maybe you need to have your heart be ready to grace bomb people that are different than you. What specific plank do you tend to see a barrier for you and your friends to experience God? Keep removing planks so that you can fully go to God. I'm going to pray that we will be friend, or fence post crushers, taking them down. Sounds awesome. But pray that we will be people who will tear down fences for others to experience the grace God offers them. If you want God to continue to speak to you, 
and how you can do that this week, you can pray with me right now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us uh, an example of how to tear down fence posts. Jesus is this perfect example of how to do that. God, I just pray, some of us, we've created fence posts. We need to tear these posts down between the ones we've created between others and you. Help us remove some of those. And God, some of us right now, we're, we're realizing that you've torn down fence posts for us to go to you. You've taken down all the, the messiness, the mess ups we've done. You've taken those fence posts down and you've allowed us to come to you. So God, right now we want to come to you for that living water. God, we want you to fulfill our souls so that we can, we can be people that are, are inspired to live for you. So God, I just pray that that happens. In your name we pray.